Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Tuesday, August 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Salvage food stores have long been a place for people to find deals at a deep discount, but inflation and some rebranding is making them grow in popularity. These stores sell what mainstream retailers call unsellables, often products like dented cans and boxes, things on the cusp of sell-by dates, and weird holiday marketing attempts. Another thing fueling interest is a small subgenre on social media where people chronicle their trips and display their hauls like trophies. Some people just love finding a good deal. Kim Severson, food correspondent at the New York Times, joins us for what to know about salvage stores. Next, almost $400 million went to a veteran retraining program as part of the American Rescue Plan. But a lack of oversight and the involvement of for-profit schools led to a flop where only 397 veterans landed jobs. It's known as the Veteran Rapid Retraining Program, or VRAP. One school where there was problems was the Chicago-based Future Tech Career Institute. Students there said that schedules were disorganized and didn't follow a set syllabus, and school-issued laptops didn't have enough memory and couldn't run critical software. Lisa Ryan, reporter at the Washington Post covering the federal government, joins us for more. It's News Without the Noise. Let's dive in. You have to maybe set aside some of your preconceived notions about what the dates on, on it means. They're really, I'm telling you, for people who love a deal and who are trying to be thrifty and who are a little adventurous. They're fantastic places to shop. Joining us now is Kim Severson, food correspondent at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Kim. Great to be here. Well, let's talk about something I I didn't really have uh, much basis of knowledge for, salvage grocery stores. Now, this is places where you can find uh, foods, uh, you know, dented cans, things like that, uh, highly discounted items, uh, maybe things that are very near the expiration date, things or the sell-by date. There's a whole distinction (laughs) that we can go into on that. But, you know, for a long time, people that were just very frugal and whatnot or adventurous people wanting to look for real cool deals would hit these stores up right now because of inflation at an all-time high. Grocery prices are 13% higher than they were a year ago. A lot more people are venturing to these stores to find a deal. So, Kim, tell us a little bit more about these salvage grocery stores. Yeah, this is it's just fascinating world of food. It's called a secondary food market. So, you know, if you think of all the food in the grocery store and maybe there's a a carton that gets ripped in the shipping and all the, you know, the the boxes are fine inside except for one, the distributor is going to just set that aside. If the uh, cookie company decides instead of selling you 
14 ounces of cookies. They're changing their package to 12 ounces to, to save money, which they're doing a lot now, the food manufacturers and inflation. They don't want those older 14-ounce packages in the in circulation at the regular grocery store, so they'll take those out of circulation and they go to a food broker. There are grocery stores who have produce that's getting a little soft maybe or uh, cheese that's getting close to an expiration date or maybe a restaurant orders, you know, a case of something. They can't use it. They send it back. Now this stuff goes into this market and it's huge if you think about it. So all their brokers and stores that take all of this and sell it for sometimes half or less than you would find at the regular grocery store. The catch is at these stores, of course, that it takes a little digging to get to the good products, and uh, you have to maybe set aside some of your preconceived notions about what the dates on, on it means. They're really, I'm telling you, for people who love a deal and who are trying to be thrifty and who are a little adventurous, they're fantastic places to shop. Yeah, I mean, that's even part of the fun for some of the people that you spoke to, that hunt. You know, you find mm-hmm. uh, this great product in a box full of a bunch of random things, and, you know, they feel happy and special that they were able to find that. So to your point of what these items are and how they, uh, these other places traffic in them, they're usually called unsellables, and that's where right. that's where they end up. And these stores, a lot of them are even rebranding themselves to try to attract new customers. They got names like Sharp Shopper, The Dented Can, Stretch a Buck. And uh, as you mentioned in the article, they kind of operate in this gray area between food banks and let's say a a Dollar General store, things like that. So just an interesting look at all of this. It's hard to see how many people are shopping at these stores. You know, we don't have like very much official data, but there are a few places that analyze a bunch of receipts, say, and they think that, you know, people shopping in these places is up 8% more this year. Right, and that's you know from a, a site that uh, where people send in their receipts. You know, it's like a loyalty program, but for products, not for necessarily for stores. And there, it's a big number. So that was the, the hardest number we could get. The big food analytic companies like Mintel or IRI, which is a company that analyzes all the barcodes on packages, which are called SKUs, but they only look at the major grocery stores. These places operate so under the radar, and some of them don't have cash registers. Some of them do. Some of them take EBT. Some only take cash or checks. So there's no way to really get your arms around them. But anecdotally, you know, I talked to a lot of people who run these stores and they're definitely seeing, you know, one uh, one store saw a 36% increase just in the last month to month from July when I was out reporting most of the story from June. Some of them are reporting 10, 15% bigger sales than a year ago. Some of them were like, God, we've had 40, 50% increases. A lot of these stores are kind of out in, um, not right in city centers, but a little bit more rural or 15, 20 minutes outside of the city or maybe an hour. And I talked to one fellow who runs a store that's about 40 minutes from Raleigh, North Carolina. And he said, you know, we're seeing a lot more people from the city making the drive out here, which he usually doesn't see. And I think there's two kinds of people who shop at these stores. There are people who are just you know, some of it's necessity, right? So you don't have a lot of money and you have to uh, figure out ways to feed yourself. These stores have always been really reliable. And there are people who are kind of naturally thrifty and just feel right. like spending a bunch of unnecessary money on, you know, either name brand products at the grocery stores where you're paying for prettier atmosphere isn't really worth it. And then again, you know, there are people who just really, it's pure sport for them. <laughs> right, uh, there's exactly. this new group of... and and. Uh, it's, uh, 
you know, re- reading through Good. the story right away, it kind of made me want to go check one of these out. I live in California, so there's this uh, website called Buy Salvage Food that somebody started, uh, somebody mm-hmm. that you spoke to. I checked that. Unfortunately, there were no salvage stores in my area, but there are. they are dotted throughout the country, and you can find them there. But tell me a little bit about that. Tell me also, because a lot of these salvage stores are taking the concept online. A lot of people obviously are spreading the word on social media. So that's kind of taken on a life of its own. One interesting sort of side note to some of this are people who are, if you call them waste warriors, people who are very interested in helping to stop the amount of wasted food that goes into our landfills. And it's, it's a huge amount of food. I think some uh, in the food supply, somebody said 20% of the agricultural climate change problem and waste and food comes from just food that we throw away. I think the Department of Agriculture figures there's $161 billion worth of food that gets dumped into landfills. So a lot of people are trying to reduce waste and they like to run their kitchens and live in a household that is doing its part to help waste. So you see a lot of those folks coming in. And online, there's sort of two camps. There are these interesting like TikTok and YouTubers who will go to these stores and show their like bread on the kitchen counter. <laughs> right. and they'll be like, this is what I got for $30. It's just a real sport almost. It's so, it's so energizing. You know, I remember to the days of uh, the extreme couponing on the TV shows oh, yeah, and everything. Right? And it just makes yeah. you, it makes you want to like get out and start your own, you know, track all your coupons it's and so do that. Thrilling, right? yeah, I totally. mean, there's something thrilling about like, you know, um, and it's almost like, uh, you know, going to Vegas or something like, oh, look, I got all this for only this much. I mean, everybody loved a deal. Americans love a deal, yeah. right? So it's so funny. You almost feel like you're not like you're beating the system. But, you know, geez, if you can get a case of, uh, you know, seltzer, you know, it's usually 15 bucks for, for $5. And Hell yeah. there's nothing wrong with it right other away. than maybe, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's, now, yeah, it's a good thing. So now it's like fascinating. You, now, like you said, uh, you know, a lot of people shopping in these places kind of have to do away with some of these preconceived notions about sell-by dates and things like that. For a long time, we've known, you know, the sell-by date is really just a suggestion. It doesn't mean the food is bad. Congress is even considering changing uh, some of the wording, maybe a much more uniform rule when it comes to sell-by dates. I think they want to use the term best if used by to indicate quality, used by specifically to indicate when something might be going bad. Those words on the label are really mostly for manufacturers to get you to buy their product when they think it's at its peak. It's for inventory control for groceries. It's a kind of a weird thing that's not regulated at all and that is it really means nothing in terms of food safety. The federal government only requires a regulation of dates on infant formula. So you absolutely cannot sell infant formula past the date that it's marked and there's rules around when those dates get put on the packages. Individual states will have rules. I think in Montana you have to mark it 12 days after the day it was pasteurized, and then stores can't sell it after that date. But, you know, this varies. Like New York State has no rules around food labeling, right? So it's kind of all over the place. Certainly the expires on dates, on things like, you know, yogurt, which is already sour. But there are certain things that bacteria that can start growing in food that you can't see or smell. So that, you know, I think there's some things to consider, like, if you have a dairy product, has a date on the milk carton, but the milk carton has that cold chain has been broken, say it, it came up to room temperature at some point during the shipping and sure. then went back down, that's going to go bad quicker than one that's been kept super cold. So it's a really kind of wild west out there. And it's interesting if the uniform national rule comes into play. So 
best diffused by would just be like a man, like we have now. The manufacturer thinks this box of cereal is best if it's used by December 2023. And then a use-by date, which will be much more regulated around the time that, particularly for dairy products and things uh, or meat, that that might start to spoil. So that would be great, right, if we could have this uniform thing. And totally. I, the grocery manufacturers are, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a battle, right, because grocery manufacturers want to be able to work the federal rules to their advantage. And anyway, so I think for a lot of people I talk to, it's like sort of common sense. Would you eat a box of cereal that was just two months past the Best Buy day? Yeah, I most mean, likely. I, would, I, think I've done, I think I've done it uh, <laughs> many, I, time, I many times before. In my cupboard right now, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just... You know, if, I, if you had meat, right? So you look at that meat and it says, you know, sell by the third and it's the fifth and I'm looking at that meat in the grocery store. Personally, I'd be like, God, unless I'm going to eat it right away, it's making me yeah. look right. So it's funny. We all have our own... Totally. You know, limits, right? But, but for now, you know, the, just the, the popularity of these, some of these salvage stores is growing right now, as I mentioned, especially in this time of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some super quick tips and tricks. Get to know the store and the staff when, uh, right. you know, so they can tell you when the deals are, when shipments are there. And people who go to these stores, they say get there early. When the shipment is there, you can get that best selection there. So check it out. See if there's any salvage grocery stores in your area. It might be an interesting little adventure. Kim Severson, food correspondent at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll see you at the salvage store, friend. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. was investigated by the state of Illinois. It ended up a couple months ago losing its accreditation for this program and for the GI Bill as well. You know, just a lot of deceptive practices, promises they couldn't meet. Joining us now is Lisa Ryan, reporter covering the federal government at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about one of these government programs, one of these programs that went up 
during the pandemic and uh, some of this money from the American Rescue Plan. So this is a plan. Uh, it's called the um, Veteran Rapid Retraining Assistance Program, or VRAP. And this was a uh, thrown together in that, as I mentioned, the American Rescue Plan, some $386 million going to this program. It was supposed to retrain veterans, get them jobs, that whole thing, all sorts of good stuff. As of August 1st, only about 6,800 veterans had enrolled in the program. It was supposed to be about 17,000 that enrolled in it, and only 397 people actually landed jobs after this. So to say that this program was sort of a failure, I guess so right here. So Lisa, tell us a little bit more about this and, and all the troubles that went into this. We decided to look at a relatively small program that came out of the set, the American Rescue Plan, which is basically President Biden's effort, you know, to pump money, you know, through Congress to pump money into the economy last year, which when the pandemic was still really having a, an effect in every state. President Trump had uh, done something similar in 2020 with the CARES Act. And so VA in total, veterans, the Department of Veterans Affairs got $37 billion. So, you know, this program, I mean, it was a small piece of the pie, but we wanted to look at it to understand really whether it was really worth it. And, and there was just so much money sloshing around at VA and a lot of other federal agencies that really, you know, hadn't gotten much attention. So this program, it turned out, was modeled on a program that had started in the Great Recession in 2012. Very similar, actually, with a very similar name. <laughs> yeah, that one's and the it, Veterans yeah. Retraining Assistance Program. So minus, exactly. take one R, take the rapid out of it. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And so that program, you know, like this one, was very well-meaning, obviously. But for a variety of reasons, these retraining programs, you know, they just have various pitfalls that oversight bodies, you know, like the Government Accountability Office and, and the Inspector General at VA have pointed out. And a lot of it does have to do with just oversight, but also just the fact that they tend to be really for-profit institutions that are running these programs. And in our case, in the current iterations, we looked at one school that actually Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois had really brought into the limelight called Future Tech based in Chicago because his office started getting complaints. And what happened was this was a, a for-profit school that very quickly inhaled about 320 veterans in the course of days. And they were clearly targeting them for a year of retraining, career retraining. And, you know, the other problem, of course, is there's so much money for in the veteran space. And so, you know, these for-profit schools very much want the revenue, you know, that the government gives out for veterans. Anyway, this program was investigated this school was investigated by the state of Illinois. It ended up a couple of months ago losing its accreditation for this program and for the GI Bill as well. You know, just a lot of deceptive practices, promises they couldn't meet. And then it turned out that that was sort of not exactly the tip of the iceberg, but in terms of the struggles that the program has had, it was. There are 90 schools in total that had their approvals pulled by VA for VRAP. Not all of them were involved with deceptive practices. In yeah. fact, I think a minority were, but there were other issues that were, you know, problems. And then overall, we, we found that VA, again, even though they really meant well, but they just had, I mean, there were a couple of issues. They, they had really defined the eligibility criteria very narrowly. You could only, you can't, couldn't have been um, on the GI Bill. And, you know, that's kind of a big deal. So it was very much geared to older veterans. The problem was they did like no marketing. Now they're trying to get better about it, but they didn't let anyone know right. except really on their website. And 
that was a problem. And by the time that this program really got started, the unemployment rate for veterans had already started to improve. So that was another thing. So maybe not the most necessary thing. And, you know, back to what happened there with Future Tech uh, in Chicago. You know, so students that were enrolled said that the schedules were disorganized. Courses didn't follow a set syllabus. They were providing them school-issued laptops that didn't have enough memory or, you know, couldn't run some of the critical software that they needed. They were left without instruction for long stretches of time. And in this future tech school, right? And you're talking about these for-profit organizations. It had right. it had already been enrolled in one of these programs under a different yep. name, got its cre- exactly. accreditation taken away. It's now at the end of the story, you read through it and it's now changed its name again. And it has been told it can go back into the program or reapply for all this stuff. Well, I mean, it's so, so tough. Yeah, I mean, the, and those were the rules that VA sets. I mean, you know, I think a program could improve its fortunes and its functioning. But yeah, there is sort of a looseness about this. And I think a lot of people who read the story, you know, who we heard from, you know, were really concerned about, you know, the for-profit angle because the government has never had a great experience with these for-profit, for-profit schools. So the problem is, you know, the program ends in four months. And I think that, you know, VA spent about half the money. And I think they're going to have to ultimately return maybe more than $100 million to the U.S. Treasury, which would be unfortunate. But we just really wanted to show that all this money that has gone, that is coursing to federal agencies, you know, some of them are really struggling to spend it wisely. Yeah, just a hastily put together program, it seems like, you know, modeled you know, I don't know how big a success the first program was, but, you know, it, 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 we laughed about it, right? But it added the word rapid into it. And, and that's really seemed to be the downfall there. It was just put together yeah. too quickly without enough oversight, as you mentioned, and forethought to what's going on right now. And for the students right. that got involved in it, right? You, you profiled one that said, you know, she was hoping to have had certifications for a few other things. She was only able to walk out of there with one. And, and the job that she has now, you know, just isn't enough. So I would suggest everybody go out and check out Lisa's piece on this because there's a good, a lot of good details and a little better understanding of what happens in some of these types of programs. Lisa Ryan, reporter covering the federal government at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.